a series, an eight-week series on what's called a peacemaking church. And we're, we're, we've started with the first part saying, look, true peace is only found when we have peace with God. That's where it all starts, and it's founded on and in Jesus Christ and what he's done. Then we started talking about different aspects of how peace can be more and more manifest in the church. And the second thing we talked about, how peace is actually a huge witness to a watching world because the world longs for peace. Peace with God because we have that sense of guilt. We know we're culpable. We know we've done wrong. But there's also peace with each other because we live in a world of conflict. So if we manifest and declare the peace of God through Jesus Christ and we show it here in this church and how we relate to each other over the long haul and over the the ups and downs of church life, right? The more that we get to know each other, the more we can love each other, but there's also more potential for conflict, right? Because then we start saying, man, that person really does bug me. (laughs) But that's when we get to see God at work as we respond to what He's done for us, and we get to extend grace, and we also get are quick to confess when we've done wrong, right? And that's what we talked about last week is confession. Real peace only happens when we own our part. We take the log out of our own eye. We recognize that our hearts are wanting hearts. The conflict that happens is because I play a part in it, and I want what I want, how I want it, when I want it, and if you get in my way, I'm going to punish you for it, right? So we talked about that last week. Well, the next week is, this week is supposed to be on repentance because that's a part of playing of what, what has to happen when there's peace. But here's the deal. I set up this series back, I was just planning out the calendar back in like April. And week four, is this week four or week five? Anyways, this was supposed to be on repentance. Andrew, good friend of mine who is preaching today, and I'll say more about it in a second, but he contacted me, hey, Chris, I'm going to be in the area. You know, he lives out in, on the east, in the east, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he said, hey, I'm going to be in the area. I'd love to preach. And I said, well, okay, great. What would you like to preach on? Oh, it's a great Psalm 32, the surprising joy of repentance. And I looked on my calendar, September 23rd, Psalm 32, real peace only comes through repentance. I'm not making this up. <laughs> I had told you that. I was like, no way. That's perfect. So we have the treat today. Don't get up yet, Andrew. Andrew is an old friend. Uh, when I first joined staff at the bridge in Newbury Park in 2006, Andrew was on staff already. He was the pastor of biblical counseling. And uh, so we became friends. We were probably a year and a half right before you left. So he left to go to Florida to become a senior pastor. And uh, Andrew is a, gosh, a, a, a man who loves the Lord. And um, he is the professor, associate professor is the official title, I think, of biblical counseling. And you have some other titles on there too. But no, Andrew is also uh, with the ACBC, the, uh, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. He's on the board. And uh, he is what I aspire to be. I'm starting that route myself to finally get a certified, and then we'll see what God does. So, Andrew Rogers, please come up, and you can tell us more about yourself. But come sure. on up, Andrew. <laughs> Dude, a really short podium. I know, I know. <laughs> I hope I can see my notes. Well, good morning. It is a true delight to be here. Um, I spent the weekend in Laguna Hills and uh, teaching at a conference for ACBC, and so we do conferences throughout the nation. And uh, I also have the privilege not only of serving at Boyce College and Southern Seminary, overseeing the biblical counseling department for Boyce College, the undergraduate school of Southern Seminary, but also have this awesome opportunity to serve with an overseas organization called Overseas Instruction and Counseling. And so... um, We have been uh, training and equipping pastors in the area of discipleship and shepherding and counseling um, in many, many, many countries. And uh, we do uh, church leadership training, and then we also conduct academic programs. And so I have the privilege of serving as a director of academic programs. We have three in the Middle East. We have one in uh, Ukraine. We have one in the Philippines, and we're about ready to start a second one in the Philippines next year. Um, so we need people with doctoral degrees to help teach that. So uh, maybe you guys impress upon Chris to go get his doctoral degree, and uh, he can come and help us with that ministry. So anyway, so it's a wonderful privilege. Um, some of you might remember me. Some of you do not. Uh, I do have four kids. been married for 24 years to my beautiful wife, Jenny. We attended Fresno State, and that's where we met and uh, had the privilege of 
of now being married to her for 24 years. Have four kids. My oldest is 20. He's serving as a reconnaissance marine in uh, Camp Lejeune. So because of Florence, we had a wonderful opportunity of actually seeing him the last week and a half um, because he was flooded out and evacuated. So um, just one interesting note. Uh, while he was in our home, we were watching the news, and the news report said, they have, they have forced the Marines to stay at Camp Lejeune. They're not allowing the Marines to evacuate, which, to which I looked at my son and said, dude, are you AWOL? Um, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so we realized, yeah, they didn't know what they were talking about. So anyway, um, we have an 18-year-old son, Hayden, who um, uh, he is a freshman at Boyce College. And so his dorm is about 350 feet from my office, so I get to keep an eye on him. Um, <laughs> My, and then we have two daughters, uh, 14 and 12. They are 8th uh, grade and 7th grade, uh, loving volleyball, violin, swimming, and just being girls. So um, needless to say, after um, launching two boys, uh, the drama in my home is a little different. Uh, never realized how much of a buffer my boys were, and uh, so you can pray for me. Uh, no, it's, it's a delight. It's a delightful trial um, of drama. So anyway... Um, hey, again, just a privilege to be here with you. The text for today is Psalm 32, and uh, so if you want to turn and tap to there, um, then uh, that's our text for today. I'd like to read it and then pray for us, and uh, again, we, just, we need the Lord's help in order to understand His Word, uh, not that we would just know it, but also be effectual doers of it. So, Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging the fact that we are needy people. You are holy, you are incomparable, you are magnificent, you are wonderful, you are awesome, you are great, you are mighty, you are pure, you are right, and you are true. You are merciful, and you are gracious. And your steadfast love endures forever. We are none of those things. We are empty. And we are sinful. And we are in a desperate state. And we are so grateful for the provision of your Son and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the continual ministry of Christ to return and come back for us. We are so grateful to you for that wonderful truth. Father, help us to continually appreciate the atonement of Christ. Help us to continually appreciate what it means that you are rich in mercy and that you had loved us with a great love and that you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and that we are adopted as your sons, that we are legitimate children of you, and then we can cry out to you, Abba, Father. Help us to continually live with that conscious awareness of our childhood, of our child relationship to you. 
Father, again, we're grateful to you. We want our hearts to continually grow in passion to worship you, to continually be enlarged with affection for you and your will and your desires and for other people. And so it is to you that we ask that you help us to understand your word, that we might know it, be transformed by it, and be effectual doers of it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, throughout uh, Scripture, there is the talk about what is true blessing, and, and in this passage, in the Hebrew language, we can translate this as blessed, we can also translate it as happy, uh, it can be joy-filled, but it's basically the sense that there is a good report. There is something really good to report. Matter of fact, in, in, uh, uh, Chris was making reference to Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 1, uh, Paul has this incredibly elongated, uh, makes a, it's a grammarian's nightmare, um, run-on sentence uh, in the whole chapter of chapter 1. But he says, blessed be God, and, and that's the word where we get eulogy. And in other words, there's something to really praise God for. And fundamentally, what he's saying is we need to praise God for our salvation. We need to praise God for the relationship we have to God, and that's only possible through Christ. And so in this passage, what Paul or David is saying is, you know, blessed is the one whose transgressions is, are forgiven. And we see this used elsewhere. Uh, in Psalm 1.1, it's blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In Psalm 33, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 34, 8, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 94, blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Proverbs 3.13, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. And James 1.12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And this is what Scripture talks about of what a true blessed person is. And yet the world has a lot of many things, many things to say about what true blessings are. You're blessed if you have this. You have, you're blessed if you have popularity. You're, you're blessed if you have relationships. You're blessed if you have many likes on social media. You're blessed if you have projects to do. You're blessed if you have work. You're, you're, you're blessed if you have meaning. You're, you're blessed if you believe in something. There's, there's so many different categories in which the world comes up with what true blessing really is. But scripture is very clear about what true blessing is. And sometimes what happens though is we don't appreciate and we sometimes underestimate what a clear conscience, what the rest in Christ, and what being at peace with God really is, the value of that. Matter of fact, that's what Paul alludes to, and we're looking at, not that I'm here to preach on Ephesians 1, but, uh, but anyway, what Paul alludes to in Ephesians, when he makes a transition from chapters 1, 2, and 3, and in chapter 4, what he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I exhort you, I beseech you, I plead with you, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That word for worthy, those of you mathematicians in there, is where we get the word axiom. And fundamentally what it means is that on one side of the equation equals the other side of the equation. And what's on one side of the equation is our walk. That's the way we live. That's how Paul uses that word. And then it's the worthiness of our calling. So in other words, there is an absolute, there is to be, what Paul is saying is there should be this incredible estimation, this credible esteem of our calling in Christ, of what it means to be forgiven, of what it means to be the inheritance of God, and to have God as our inheritance, to be made a, a son of God, to be a child of God, and the filial relationship that comes with that, and all of its privileges and responsibilities. And so, when we think about what is true blessing, how often do we meditate on the blessing of being forgiven? Matter of fact, Jesus alludes to that when he's talking to the disciples, and the disciples are coming back, and they're talking about all these wonderful things, there's all these great things that we're doing, it's fabulous, it's awesome, and there's all these things within the world that we could talk about that are really great. But then Jesus makes it very clear, though. Let us rejoice in this alone, that your name is written in the book of life. 
And see, for the one who is sealed for that day of redemption, for the one who has the Holy Spirit within their lives, and there's a guarantee of that eternal inheritance, we are truly blessed people. We are truly blessed people. And so David recognizes that, and he opens with that. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, to give us some context behind Psalm 32 that, so that we can understand it and understand what exactly David is saying and ultimately what is it that the Lord is saying to us and how would he have us to understand it, we want to recognize that the context behind this is 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, we see that David committed his sin against Bathsheba. And you remember that story, and, and we, I don't know if we need to uh, reiterate that or repeat it, but, but ultimately... David had sinned against Bathsheba, he had sinned against the nation of Israel, and he had sinned, certainly against Uriah, um, and he had lied, and he had committed adultery, okay, and this was his sin. Now, what we know, though, is this, he did not come to grips or come to conviction of his sin to a certain extent by himself, okay? After I saw Renee do what she did, I recognized this is a crew that likes to interact, Okay? So I'm going to go from preacher to professor real quick, all right? So, when you think about David and this sin against Bathsheba and all that went on, and he, was, he left this unconfessed for a long period of time. So who was it? Your quiz for the day. Okay, I'll give extra credit. Okay, but who was it that confronted him? Nathan, yeah. So sometimes we... we we call when we ex exhort somebody or confront somebody, we could call it Nathanizing them, okay? Um, but not euthanize, Nathanize, okay? <laughs> so Nathan approached him and said to him, you're the man. You're the man. And the conviction came upon David, but he had gone somewhere between six to nine months without confessing that sin. So in Psalm 51, we have his confession. And so I do want you to turn quickly to Psalm 51. I do promise after this introduction, we are going to get to Psalm 32. Okay? But in Psalm 51, I, I, I do just want to draw your attention to a few things. Now, we see in verses 1 through 3, he's making his appeal to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, one of the wonderful things about being forgiven is that God no longer deals with us according to our sins. So when he has a relationship with us, because we're in Christ, he's not relating to us according to our sins. He's not dealing with us because of those. He's dealing with us as children. We're, he's dealing with us as those who are forgiven. He's dealing with us as those who have the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's incredible peace, and there's tremendous rest in that. Verses 4 and 5, he, he certainly shows that he understands the nature of his sin. He says, it's against you. You only have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your Judgment. I recognize this is a sin because you say it is, and Paul, or David is, is subjecting himself and submitting himself under the judgment and the authority of God. In verses 6 through 12, what we see is there's this desire that he wants to change. He recognizes that he delights in truth. He wants him to be purged. He wants to hear the joy and gladness. He wants his bones uh, that he's been broken to rejoice. He wants God to hide his face. He wants to blot out his iniquities. He wants God to create in him a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within him. In verses 18 and 19, what we see in this, in this area that we see that he wants and is about God's program. But in 13 through 17... David seeks the privilege of being a lesson to others. In verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Psalm 32 is then a product of that very commitment. This is a teaching psalm, and it is a teaching psalm on theology, on doctrine, by way of experience, by way of testimony. 
So he is stating for us, this is the doctrine. The doctrine is this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now there's something else we need to understand about in order to be able to appreciate what David is doing. This is poetic language. This is a psalm. And so he is using poetic devices to convey truths as best as he can. Okay? And again, it's written form, so we don't, get, we don't hear David yelling about it or screaming about it or getting really excited about it or dancing around about it. So, so he has to try to convey the excitement of this using words or using poetic devices to help communicate this. And so there's a poetic device that's used throughout Psalm 32, and that is where the author will employ three synonymous words... And the point is not for us to get too caught up in the details of each of those words, but rather to recognize that when he uses three synonymous words, what he is wanting to convey is the totality or the comprehensive nature of the topic. So I want you to catch this real quick then. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, you have three words for sin. Transgression sin, and iniquity. Three words for sin. That is the totality of sin, the wholeness of sin. Sin in all of its intensity, and sin in all of its extensiveness, in sin in all of the times it might ever happen. Every bit of it. That's what David is saying. The whole, I guess we could just say the whole enchilada. The everything, okay? Everything that there is to be said about sin, everything about sin, every sin that's ever been committed is covered. But what's awesome to see is that's met with three other words. And it's three words for forgiveness. Your transgression is forgiven, your transgression is covered, and he counts no. Does not hold to your account your iniquity. So what we see is that the blessed person, the truly happy person, is the one in the totality of their sin is met with the totality of God's forgiveness. And so a person cannot out-sin the mercy and grace of God. Okay? And that's what he's conveying in those two verses, is that incredibly robust and rich theology. That the totality of one sin. Now, what does that mean? How, do, what is that, how does that imply, or, or what implications are there? How does that affect my life? It means, first and foremost, I can never believe that I have ever sinned so bad that I cannot be forgiven. That's one thing. You can't believe that because he specifically is against that. So I can't believe that. I cannot believe that there's a sin so bad that I can't be forgiven. And there are many people who think that way. I had a neighbor in Florida, and uh, we continually shared the gospel with him, and, um, and I used him all the time. Matter of fact, um, whenever we were training the church how to, to present and share the gospel, uh, sometimes I'd just bring people over to him um, and just let them share again, and he was just completely open to it. I mean, matter of fact, he, uh, at one point we showed up to his door, and I said, hey, bud, and he, he saw there were people from my church and he's like oh okay let's let's go outside and so as he's leaving the door he yells into his wife hey honey Andrew's gonna try to convert me again and so and <laughs> and so we go outside and, and we sit there you know and I give all my, my church members practice learning how to how to share the gospel and and uh, but here was the hang-up the hang-up was he completely understood how bad he was and, and he would even say to me, Andrew, you do not want me to come to your church. And I said, well, help me understand that. He said, if I go to your church, it's going to burn down. Now, at first, it was like, wait a minute, is that a threat? Um, but but I, I asked him, I said, okay, hey, is it because you think you've sinned so bad that you just couldn't show up in a church because God would just simply smote you on the spot? And that was it. That was exactly it. And, and we had to just explain the truths of this passage to him. To this date, I don't know if he's ever come to faith in Christ, but that was a real issue that he really faced, and there's a number of people just like him that need to hear exactly what David is saying here. So, to kind of help us organize 
um, this psalm a little bit. I have divided it into seven sections. Um, those of you, I, I think there's, are there notes? Oh, great. Because you probably have some blanks, right? Yeah, and some of you right now are like completely on the edge of your seat. Oh, my goodness. Is he going to give me one? Okay, give me some hope here. All right. All right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. All right, you OCD people. Here we go. Um, for verses 1 through 2, bountiful blessing. Bountiful blessing. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. Bountiful blessing. Okay? We see the breadth of sin. We see the, the breadth of forgiveness. And, and just to help us understand it a little bit, um, we can share a little bit too, at, at least, what are the distinctions of these words? When you think of transgression, transgression is simply the crossing of the line. Okay, here's the line, I crossed it. Here's the law, I broke it. Okay, don't eat, I ate. Okay, it's just that simple. That's a transgression, just a, a, a violation of divine command. Sin is the failure from just our normal aim in life to ever truly be righteous. In, in other words, there's just no way I can live. There's nobody, not enough good works I could ever do to meet the righteous requirements of God. So that's the idea. Again, that's, we get the, that concept uh, from archery of just missing the mark. No matter how hard I try, I always miss the mark. Okay. And then third, iniquity. This fundamentally is just this perverse turning aside from the proper course of life. This is coming back to Ephesians Two, in the description of the sons of disobedience and in the description of the children of wrath, these are the people who follow the plans and the wisdom and the course of this world. These are the people who follow just the pleasures, the selfish, fleshly pleasures of life. That's iniquity. Okay. But again, the main point there is to just show the breadth of that and the completeness of it. And then the breadth of forgiveness. To forgive, that, that's the idea of lifting or carrying away. It denotes that idea of having the burden that is borne by sin taken off or taken away. To cover, this is a word that was commonly used in connection with sacrifices. Where the sin as staining and defiling the divine altars was covered over by the application to them of the blood of the victim of the sin offering. Is used here to communicate God covering the penitent sin over so as to hide it or to obliterate it. And then does not impute, again, that's where we get that accounting term. It doesn't account of or think upon. The idea here is to keep an account like a banker would keep track in his books of what a person owes in a particular account. And that's why it's so incredibly powerful to just recognize that it is the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. It's been a given to our account. Okay. And he does not charge us, if you will, what is due for our sin. Okay. Paul actually uses this passage to help understand justification by faith. In Romans 4, 4-8, through 8, he says, Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, if you had to work for your righteousness, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be mercy. It wouldn't be a gift. If you had to work for it, you would just be getting whatever you're owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and he quotes, Paul quotes, verses 1 and 2, to help us to understand justification by faith alone. Okay. Charles Spurgeon made the statement that there is never a joyful man alive, but a believer. But a believer. Okay. So why is it that then so many of us don't experience the joy of our salvation? That was one of the things that David even said in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. If it's so great, then what is making it so difficult for me to enjoy it? Now in David's case, and I, and I think would also be true of many people, is we don't enjoy our salvation because we are living in unconfessed sin. And, and that's the testimony of David. And so your second point there, and a fill-in, 
to make some of you very joyful. In verses 3 through 4 is manifold misery. Manifold misery, if he doesn't give me the fill-in. All right. By David's own testimony, one of our problems could be the way we handle our sin. We're, we're, un, we're unrest. There's an unrest. There's just not a sense of peace. There's no joy. And, and, and again, there's, there's just sorrow, it seems. And sometimes this would be the cause. See, he says he groaned or he roared because of his guilt before God. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He says that the vitality of his life was drained away. He says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now again, the Hebrew language loves to paint vivid pictures. Okay, he wants to just create a picture in your mind. And literally this is translated as his life juices were sucked out of him. Okay, that's what it means. Now, uh, matter of fact, there may be some of you in here that actually helped me move. Um, we at one point lived on Mayfield, and then we moved from Mayfield over to Dina Drive in Newbury Park. And some of you helped with that move. And, uh, but when we were cleaning out uh, the shed, and I was sweeping around and trying to clean things out, at one point I sweeped this piece of cardboard across the floor. And after further inspection, I realized this cardboard looked a little different than a normal piece of cardboard. It looked like a rat. Because it was. It was a rat. And man, the life juices were completely sucked out of him. Okay? So there's your vivid picture. All right? That's exactly what David is describing. My strength, my vitality, my life juices were just sucked out of me as if under the incredible heat of summer. When? When I kept silent. So this is what life was like when I kept silent. This is what life was like when it was unconfessed. Hebrews 12, 6 reminds us, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Did you know that one of the blessings is to not feel comfortable, and to not be comfortable, and to not be happy when you're walking in sin? Do you know that's one of the blessings of being a child of God? I remember when I first came to faith in Christ, it was late, uh, late in my teen years, and uh, I, I wasn't one of those that, that had a really horrible life. I was definitely characterized by Ephesians 2. I just lived according to the patterns of the world, and from all the, at least the world said, I was living a successful life. But man, God arrested my heart and just completely changed it, and my disposition, a new creation, came about within me. And, you know, for the very first time, I had these really weird and uncomfortable feelings when I would do the things that I normally would do, and I, I couldn't describe it. I, I mean, the best way to describe it, you guys remember Jim Carrey and the Grinch? Remember when he finally had a heart? And he's just like, what is this, right? Okay, I mean, for me, that's exactly what it was like. I, I couldn't even describe why am I so uncomfortable? Why is there no joy in the things that I have been doing all of my life. What is going on? And, and I just praise God for people who faithfully taught the word to help me understand, oh, this is conviction. This is shame. This is guilt. Why? Because it's evidence of a new creation. It's evidence of a new disposition. That heart of stone has been taken out and you have a heart of flesh. And guess what? You're now sensitive and you actually don't like sin because your, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And guess what? He don't like it. And that is what's going on inside of you. And it is a gracious thing of our Heavenly Father for us to not be comfortable in our sin. Because there's a way that does seem right to us, but it only leads to death. God wants for us life. So when He is chastising us, when that hand is heavy upon us, when our bones are wasting away, and when our life juices are being sucked out due to walking in sin, that is a wonderful grace of our Heavenly Father because He wants for us life and He wants it abundant. And life is only found in Him and being rightly related to Him. There's a rest and a peace that we can certainly experience in this lifetime, but oh, please understand, it does not even compare to the life to come. 
you recognize that, you know, right now, you may recognize a certain thing that's gone on in your life. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following, Peter describes what is to happen in a person's life and sanctification. He says, you've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so then he says, then make every effort. Get to it. Work on it. Add to your faith. See, that's where we all start, right? We all start in Christianity just with our faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, you need to supplement that faith with virtue, which is really a way of saying moral courage, meaning you want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing, but what do I lack? Knowledge. I don't know what the right thing is. And so you supplement virtue with knowledge. Great! Now I know the right thing to do. Now I'm going to go out and just go do the right thing. Whoa! Doing the right thing is not as easy as I thought. There's like constant resistance to doing the right thing. As Paul describes it, like the law of gravity, guess what? Every one of us are resisting gravity every single day. And at night, we just got to give up. And we just let gravity win. Take me home, gravity, right? The law of sin and death, very similar. It's a constant law. It's constantly resisting every step we make to be righteous. Why David, that's why Paul says, right, the, the thing I want to do, I do not do, and that which I do not want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Jeez, what a wretch I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Jesus Christ. Okay. But there's constant resistance, and that's why Peter says you need to supplement your knowledge. You have to supplement it with self-control. You, you actually have to put up a fight. In the power and strength of the Lord that works mightily within you. See, we don't do it on our own. It's a cooperative effort. We can do it if we're in Christ. Before Christ, we sin as as slaves, but in Christ we sin as volunteers. Because we have the freedom not to do it. We have the freedom to put it on the, the new self. We have that freedom in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we have to utilize self-control. There's no other way around that. And and here's the kicker. We don't become godly by just using self-control maybe once in a while. See, I could say to all of you guys, I am a very patient person. Matter of fact, it was with Chris. It was August 2nd, 2006, and I was patient with Chris, right? And ever since then, I'm a patient, that's it. It was that moment in time that made me a patient person. That's it, I'm a patient person, right? Yeah, you all know that's not true, okay? And by the way, that's not even, that's completely fictitious, I made it up. So, but it's to illustrate a point, and what Peter was saying is this, look, you have to add something to your self-control. You actually have to utilize self-control on a regular basis. You add to self-control steadfastness. Ah, and what do you add to steadfastness? Godliness. Godliness. And to godliness, brotherly love. And to brotherly love, love. Those last three epitomize the follower of Jesus Christ, but you get there by the sup- making every effort to supplement those things. It requires those things to move forward. And so when we experience the heavy hand of God and the discomfort in our sin, that is a gracious thing in which we can thank God for. And Psalm 94 says it like this, Blessed is the man whom the Lord chastens and whom you teach out of your law. And in Proverbs 3, it says, My son, don't reject the discipline of the Lord or even loathe His reproof. Don't loathe it. Actually delight in it because of what it produces. So in verse 5, what we see here now is part of his testimony. This now is put on display in Psalm 51. And what we have here is complete confession. Again, we have those three words used again, or at least three words used again, to help us to understand that he confessed completely. There was absolute comprehensive nature to his confession. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Again, three words, same three words, for sin, and then three words for um, confession. And what was the result? You forgave the guilt of my sin. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. See, there's a faithful promise. We get it in 1 John 1, 9. Okay. Well, now, we have other options, 8 and 10, because we could say that I claim to be, have no sin at all, and that means I really don't even know me. 
I don't know myself if I claim to be without sin. And then I could claim that I've not sinned, that that which I did was not actually a sin. Well, now I'm calling God a liar, which Psalm 51, you remember what David said, you are right when you judge. You are right when you say this is a sin because you're the righteous one. You're the righteous one. If you say it's a sin, it's a sin. And what business do I have trying to argue with you about it? And so if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Honestly, verse 5 and 32 in 1 John 1, 9, absolutely the same statement. One was, if we do it, and verse 5, David says, I did it, and he forgave the guilt of my sin. He acknowledged it, means he made it known, he declared it. Matter of fact, the the Hebrew language emphasizes the fact that he was doing this willfully. He was doing it with force. He was doing it with intentionality. That I acknowledged my sin. I did not hide it. The idea of covering something like with clothing. He laid it bare. He hid nothing. He held nothing back. He said, I confess, which just simply means I agreed with God's estimation. I agreed with God's judgment about that. And so I took care of it. For I know my transgressions, he says. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Okay. Micah 7.18 helps us to kind of be still in, in wonderment. Because he says, who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Who is a God like you? So the experience, the joy, repentance, we have to confess our sins. David realized that in word and by experience. And then he wants to care for others. And so in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 6, we see caring counsel. Caring counsel. He says in verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So in other words, in light of this incredible theology... What's the theology? The theology is God will forgive your sins if you confess them. I mean, that's, that's the principle. That's the theology. Therefore, in light of that great truth, in light of that theology, that theology should be practiced. See, we have to understand, theology is practical, but our practice is theological. And what I mean by that is our theology, when we understand it, it should work itself out in the way we think and live and what we say, but at the same time, the way we think and the way we live and the way what we say and what we do also reflects what we believe. And so if I were to believe this it, to be true, then what would I do? And what David is saying, this is what you do. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Because he, you are. You're immediate. You're accessible. Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Implied? Nowhere. So you are accessible. I can go to you. But there's more than the fact that I can go to you, but you're also safe to go to with my sin. There are some people who do not turn to God because they honestly don't think he's safe to go to with their sin. See, the context, you know, love casts out fear. Sometimes we, we misuse that from its context or rip it from its context because its context is very rich. Because the richness of that context is the fact that fear relates to punishment. Fear relates to the fact that if I'm going to stand before God, he is going to take care of me right then and there. But love casts out fear. When I recognize that he loved me and he gave himself for me and he made propitiation for my sins and he redeemed me and he ransomed me with the blood of Jesus Christ and he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God and he would not spare his own son. And not only that, but when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is for you. It is for your sake. Love casts out fear. When I recognize I am an adopted child of God, I have all the confidence in the world to approach God in my sin. Because he's my father. He is my father. And that's what David's trying to convey. He wants us to understand those who are godly offer priority time when you may be found. Now there's a sense there also that do it right away. 
And you can understand that because he just said, when I kept silent, when I kept silent, this is what my life was like. So by the way, do this immediately. Don't wait, don't delay, don't rationalize. Don't. Boy, if you have to talk about your sin and then the very next word was, I was just, uh -uh -uh -uh, don't go there because you're about ready to justify yourself. Let me tell you something, you're the last person you want justifying yourself. And the people around you, you don't want justifying you either. You want justification from Christ alone. And that comes through Christ, that comes through faith, that comes through confession, that comes through forsaking my sin, repentance. And so in verse 7, we see sure safety. David's giving caring counsel, this is what you should do, there's a time limit to this, there's a sense of urgency. But then he also says, look again, there's sure safety. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. And again, what do we see there? We see three words again. What does he want to convey? He wants to convey the breadth of God's care. You're my hiding place. You preserve me. And you surround me. You're safe. You're my hiding place. You're my covering of protection against the storm. You preserve me. You watch. You keep an eye like men in a watchtower. And you surround me. Or you encompass God's deliverance is all around David, he's saying. In this structure, it denotes the personal experience of David concerning God's deliverance. His deliverance is all about him. No matter what direction David's life takes, God's deliverance is there. No matter the severity of your sin, God will save you. Do not, and there's a whole point of this, and what David's trying to say, do not hesitate to run to him. Do not hesitate to trust him with your sin, with your life. His deliverance, again, has nothing to do with David's circumstances. It's the almighty, sovereign work of God. And the imagery here depicts a well-secured city with coverings to avoid attacks from above, watchmen in the tower to keep watch all around, and a solid wall all around that city to keep people out. That's the picture and it depicts total security that one has in God. Again, the comprehensiveness of his care. We see that also in Psalm 46. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble. And sometimes that trouble is as a result of our own sin. Sometimes that trouble is our own sin. And we need to run to him quickly. We recognize that our sins will always be found out. Again, where can I go from his presence? See, and we need to understand when we're in sin and we read Psalm 139, where can I go from his presence? That's disturbing. But when we're at peace with him, then where can I go from his presence is an incredible comfort. It's just an incredible comfort. Okay. So we remember that we cannot hide our sin from God. Remember that we can entrust our sin and our troubles to him. He will not turn away. Again, Paul reiterates that in Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will it be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nope. Because I'm convinced that death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So God will not turn away anyone who comes after him with a repentant heart. So we want to come to him and confess our sins and trusting our soul to him. He is our sure safety. Now, in the text, there's a change of voice, which does happen. And it's as if God is speaking directly. It's, it's the voice of, of God coming from God's point of view in verse 8 and following. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. And what we see here in verses 8 and 9 is pointless pig-headedness. Pointless pig-headedness. Okay, in verse 8 and 9, pointless pig-headedness. It is pointless to be stubborn about this. It's pointless to be stubborn against the Lord. Okay, as Ecclesiastes, Solomon points out, it's the fact that he is above and you are below. The point he's trying to make is this. Man, you don't compare. Why would you even want to resist him? Why? It's pointless. It's absolutely pointless. And again, we see three words. And it's the breadth of God's guidance. He says, I will instruct. God will give insight. He will give comprehension and understanding. He will teach. He will give direction. And he will give guidance. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
meaning that there is this continual guidance that would take place. Psalm 129, 21, where do I go, right? I lift my eyes up to the heavens. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He's always with me, guiding and directing. Matthew 6, when we think of the Lord teaching us how to pray, what do we pray for? We, we say, just keep me from temptation, right? That's the constant. I want the constant guidance. I want the constant instruction. I want the constant counsel from God to help me avoid those temptations. That's 1 Corinthians 12 when he, when he says, take heed lest you fall. There's a sense of humility, and I recognize that I can fall at any moment. I can be tempted at any moment, and I can be lured away by my own lusts and my desires. And so I need to take the advice that Jesus gave to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Keep watch and pray. Be sober-minded and recognize your enemy prowls. Okay? And sin never takes a break. I'm telling you, I would love to leave my house one day without me. That'd be awesome. Okay? Because your new creation, new disposition, and God's faithfulness to continue a faithful work within you will just continue to grow, and your hatred for sin will continue to grow, and your love for righteousness will continue to grow, and ultimately then you recognize that your love for heaven has nothing to do with anything about it except for the fact that that's where righteousness dwells. And that's a kind of peace, and that's a kind of rest none of us can even fathom. The fact that you could live a day and there would be no resistance to the righteous things you want to do. There would be no resistance to the righteous thoughts you want to have. There would be no resistance to the righteous words you want to say. There would be no resistance to the righteous decisions you want to make. Because in heaven, that's where righteousness dwells. That is a rest. That is a peace. That is unfathomable to us. Completely unfathomable. But see, there's also that sense that we want to earn the right to be there. We want to, to do enough good to merit this salvation. And, and that's a burden to bear. And there's many of us that don't, also do not enjoy our salvation because we're still trying to supplement that gift with work. Either by beating ourselves up over our sin, either by penance, over, or just simply just saying I haven't been good enough. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and following, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. You will find rest for your souls. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. My burden is light. Because when you live out the righteous requirements of the law in sanctification, knowing that you don't have to do it to earn the right to be in heaven, wow, does that remove an incredible burden. The fact that I'm free to be patient with others, the fact that I'm free to be tenderhearted, the fact that I'm free to be kind, the fact that I'm free to be forgiving, but I know that times I will fail, but that failure did not just mean I lost my spot. Because if I'm in Christ, I'm sealed. I'm, there's a guarantee of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so I live out in sanctification with this incredible joy of, of the fact that I have this privilege in life to become more and more like Jesus Christ. I mean, we see this played out. You know, this old summer, there were a bunch of professional quarterbacks that ran a bunch of summer camps. They were quarterback camps, right? And there were some kids out there that never thought they'd ever get the chance to go to this quarterback camp. And yet, lo and behold, they received a scholarship. And for the first time in their life, they were organized. For the first time in their life, they had all their stuff together three days before they were supposed to go. The night before they were going to go, they were dressed in what they were going to wear the very next day. They couldn't sleep that night. They were so utterly excited. And what was driving them? What was so exciting for them? It's because they're going to go to this camp, and they have the hope that at some point during this camp, they're going to be a little bit more like that quarterback. And they see it with joy. It's hard. They sweat. It's painful. They have to sit down sometimes. There's even times they may have wondered, oh, my goodness, maybe I shouldn't have come. And yet, there, there's an overwhelming joy because of what they get. They recognize the privilege of being there, and they recognize the privilege of becoming more like that quarterback. And so, we certainly have something far superior than a professional quarterback. We have the creator of all things, Jesus Christ, and he's called us, and he's brought us in, and he's forgiven us, and he's made us his children, 
for the purpose of growing and becoming more like him without the burden of knowing we have to do it in order to earn the place. What an incredible rest that is. What an incredible peace that is. That my response, my work, is faith. And that my work, when it comes to my sin, is confession. And that he's faithful and just to forgive. And so why would I be pointless, or why would I be pig-headed as he says at the end? He says this, look, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you the way you should go. So I'm going to tell you how to avoid the pitfalls. I'm going to tell you the right way to go. And don't be like the horse and the mule who need bit and bridle. In other words, don't be like the people who need to experience the hardships and the consequences of what he already said you would experience if you did it. Don't be that person. So please recognize this. This is one thing you have to understand. If you have kind of in, in pride marked yourself as one that has to learn the hard way, please recognize that is a confession of a fool. That is a confession of a fool. God is specifically telling you, don't be like that. In other words, if you were to trust me, you would trust me at my word. So if I tell you the stove is hot, don't touch it. You're going to go, it's hot, I won't touch it. Not, really? Is it really hot? You know, would it really hurt me? Okay, emergency room later. I guess it does. Right, okay. Don't be like that. that. That's what he's saying. I will instruct you. I'm going to tell you which way to go. So don't be like the simpleton who sees danger and just goes right into it. Don't be that person. Lastly, verse 10 and 11, that there would be relentless rejoicing. Relentless rejoicing. Many, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That steadfast love is very important to understand. Our God has no beginning and has no end. He was never created. And he is completely self-reliant. His choice to be loyal to us, and that's the idea behind steadfast love. It, it's, a, it's a chosen loyalty to have affection for another. God is compelled by nothing other than himself to have that kind of loyal love and affection for us. And what David is saying is this surrounds the one who trusts in him. And the trust that is called upon here is this. God is a safe person to go to with your sin. God will forgive your sin. Therefore, trust his wisdom to go to him immediately with your sin and confess it that you might receive the true blessing in life, and that is the forgiveness of your sin. And then he says... At the very end, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Once again, three words, three words that express the comprehensive nature of joy, the comprehensive nature of happiness, the comprehensive nature of just what it means to be forgiven in God. And what's even better about this is that these three words not only show the comprehensive nature, but they're also done in a crescendo. And if you think about a military excursion, because that's what would be familiar to David at the time, it's the idea that we are in battle. And oh my goodness, it looks pretty good. We were the underdogs, but it's looking pretty good. And then we start seeing the enemy, some of the people of the enemy start to retreat, and we start seeing the line being pushed back. And so <gasps> there's a little more happiness. And then there's ultimate victory. And we shout for joy in that victory. And may we understand that in the day of judgment, in the day of Christ's return, that will be a blessed day. And we, if we're in Christ, will rejoice in that day and be glad in it. What a wonderful truth we have. What a wonderful God we have. What a wonderful relationship of peace, restoration, and repentance before God. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time that you've given us. Um, it's never a wasted time to learn from you and to hear from you and to know better how we should think about this life and how we should respond to the issues of our life and the circumstances of our lives that we might bring glory and honor to you. We thank you that the wisdom you give us leads to life. So we praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um,
Yes, I, I hope you were enriched and strengthened and encouraged. I love this. Don't be pig-headed. Get to confessing your sin. Get to the amazing and surprising joy of repentance. Don't fight God. My goodness. So thank you, uh, Andrew. Uh, he'll be around for a little bit, but he's got to take off, uh, get to the airport to head back home. Um, but yeah, um, let, me, let me read. I, want you, I wanted to end because I wanted to read what he ended with. So we can go to the very last, last, last slide. I'm not going to read all that very much. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's what, that's what awaits when we get to our confessing and repenting and turning to God and turning away from sin, right? So I pray that's true for us uh, as a church, but it's for us as individuals. Amen? Man, so Renee, come up. So we're going to pray for Renee. Uh, this is our closing because she has surgery on Friday. And uh, the next stage, the light is at the end of the tunnel. So I'm going to pray for her, and then uh, we'll, we'll, have, we'll end up the service. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for uh, our time singing your praises, Lord, because you are a great God. Thank you, Lord, for uh, Andrew and for just the ministry that you are working through him there at Boyce College and through uh, the many other ministries he's involved with, Lord, thank you for uh, his friendship and, Lord, for the word that, he, uh, that you spoke through him today. And, Lord, for uh, my sweet Renee, I just pray that you give her just a sense of peace, guide the doctor's hands, give them wisdom, and help her to recover. And, Lord, thank you for this amazing body and all their love and support uh, for six and a half plus years, but uh, also, too, especially these last several months in this time. So, God, we love you and thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.